He grew up near San Francisco, playing football and video games. Haider Akbar is his name. His family's from Afghanistan, and after the Taliban were defeated in 2001, his father's old friend, Hamid Karzai, now the president of Afghanistan, asked his dad to come back and help out. His dad and his uncles had all been part of the resistance that had kicked out the Soviets from Afghanistan back in the 1980s. So, when Haider was 17, he went to Afghanistan, this place that he'd been hearing about his whole life, and he took a tape recorder with him. You may have heard the audio diary that he put together for our radio show with producer Susan Burton back in 2003. Then the next summer, he went back. His father was now the governor of Kunar province, which is this remote area on the border with Pakistan, one of those... um contested areas where the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and local warlords are all still fighting with the new Afghan government and the United States military. The fate of Afghanistan, we're sometimes told, is being decided in places like Kunar. And in Kunar, Haider saw amazing things, things that reporters almost never get to see. He traveled with the U.S. military. He saw them interact with the Afghans. He translated for them sometimes. He saw behind the scenes in the new government. He was 18 years old. Today, on our radio show, Teenage Embed. WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. This is really one of the most special hours we have ever put together on the radio. And it is with pleasure that I turn things over to Haider Akbar. I was met at the airport by Sartor, who is our driver, but he's almost become part of the family because he's been with us for so long. Sartora! Sartor was my very good friend last summer. He was the person that was closest to my age. So we, were, we became really close. <laughs> Kabul has changed tremendously. Right now there's like three girls in front of me. All they have is like a loose chadar, but I see like jeans underneath their cloth. Last year, burqas were probably about 95%. This year, I'd say they've dropped to under a quarter. One out of four. Apparently there's a new uh, game show in Kabul. It's like a trivia show asking like geographical questions, etc. You can hear it. I guess the trivia part's over now. They have a Coke drinking contest. Whoever can drink the most Coke. Whoever finishes a one and a half liter bottle of Coke, I guess, wins. I guess starts. The funniest thing is the, the prizes. They're like uh, six containers of oil was one of the prizes. Two cases of soap was another prize. And one of the guys gave up. That guy won a box of detergent. The one who won the Coke drinking contest won a box of detergent. And some shoes. Hello? Hello? The road to Kunar is really bad. Zatmur says... <laughs> You can't really get a sense of the road unless you come and drive on it yourself. <laughs> Hearing it on the microphone doesn't cut it. We're probably about three, four hours away from Kunar. We're going about 20 kilometers an hour, so 15 miles an hour, I'd say. 
we can't go any faster than that on these roads. Bump after bump after bump, and then finally we got to like the the American base, and he's like, the Americans are over there, and then we went further in to like the main part of the city. It was like a little market in the middle of town, and I think everybody was looking at the car because everybody recognized the white pickup trucks belonged to my father, and they're like, oh, the governor's son's here. And as I entered, I saw that, you know, there's a bunch of people in there waiting, you know, and they were like standing in like a line. And so I was, you know, greeting everybody and giving everyone a hug. My father came, and my mom was like, You better kiss your father's hand, don't forget to kiss Don't just go up there and hug him, you know, people are going to be watching you, and you're like his son. And everybody is, he's like the governor there, so don't like go and give him a hug, and like just like lift him up or anything, just give him a kiss on the hand as a sign of respect. And then when you go inside, you guys can talk and stuff. But like, so I remember that, and I was like, I kissed his hand, and, and it was weird to finally see him in Kunar, where sort of where he's grown up and everybody knows him. and. It was weird to be in that kind of place where, like, he belongs so much. Hello, hello. Um, it's about 10.30 at night. I'm actually using, a, like, a special flashlight the Americans gave to Sartor. And he really likes it. It's a really cool-looking flashlight. It's a long tube thing. It's like those kinds you see in the, use them in the movies. Like uh, the fugitive, or like stuff like that, where they like look around in rooms. So we're outside. It's pretty dark because uh, Kunar doesn't have electricity. The landscape's incredible. Mountains after mountains, and then rivers flowing underneath, and trees. And it's a beautiful place. <sighs> There's still a lot of problems. Um. It just seems like such a daunting task, you know, these border areas, these tribal areas, all the history. It's like, I talked to my dad today about it. It seems like it's never been tamed. From the British to the Russians to everybody, to Alexander the Great, they've all struggled. And now, like, my dad is trying, you know, like any of the people in the government right now, I read somewhere an article they joked, they said there wouldn't be good life insurance policy candidates. And, uh, it's true. It's really weird to, like, take walks with my dad and have, like, armed guards walking around with me. Access the Ludo inside the jail. <laughs> I'm just talking to my dad right now. We're walking by the river. This is usually where we take our walks. There's like a little stairway down to the riverside from the house. Walking alongside there with my dad. It's been interesting to talk to my dad about some of the problems he's facing in Kunar. Um, there's the obvious ones like interference from Taliban or Al-Qaeda. Um, you know, there's the opium. But one of the problems that's not being reported much about but is becoming a somewhat of a serious problem is the reemergence of the Afghan communists. 
They are not ideologically communists. They were just people that fought on the Soviet side during the resistance. Um, these people have become police chiefs, have gotten high positions in the interior ministry, the defense ministry, and this has brought back former tormentors over the people that they tormented, and this is creating problems, especially in Kunar. My dad has told me about this uh, mass grave right, right next to us here. This was actually done, I think, during let's say around 1978 what they did the communists and uh, what they did was uh, they called the uh, all the tribal elders in this area so about 1200 men were called up and uh, once the 1200 people came the communists uh, they started gunning down basically everybody and so it's it's all really huge blow to these people to see these people back in the government after the massacres like that. And so anyway, I'll probably discuss it more when I'm there with the, the people that were there. Some There's some people that survived it. <sighs> okay, I'm walking to it now. The person that was here actually survived. So he's gonna come and tell us exactly what happened. It's usually locked, so he has to open it. Turn the door. Okay, I'm inside the place. You can hear me walking over the leaves. I didn't want to get too close with the mic. As soon as he walked in, he burst into tears. You see huge bumps in the middle, rising up, I would say like four feet high. That's where like the people were piled up on. Buried. I see a really old hat. It's probably one of the people's hats that were killed here because they left the place just like it was. So he's basically telling me what happened. He came by this bridge that's about 30 yards away from here. And he said, I saw like a firing here. And I saw this cloud of smoke and a lot of red. I saw a lot of red, so I knew there was something going on people being shot. He said when he got closer, he saw bulldozers right in this place where we're staying right now. He saw bulldozers climbing on top of the people. He says he saw some of the people, they were pretending like they were killed and they were just lying still because they thought that maybe, you know, if we lie still here and pretend we're dead, they're just going to walk away. But then they started pulling the bulldozers ahead and then they realized what was going on and before they could do anything there were just piles of dirt was piled upon them with the bulldozers and they were buried and they're alive. Mm. 
another man standing to the right of me. He remembers it too because his grandmother had died and there was a funeral, so most people from his family were here. They grabbed his father and they took him and he, he said I was only in like fifth grade at the time, so I was like, why are they grabbing my father? He said, I ran after my father and I grabbed him by the hand to try to bring him back and they said the soldier just grabbed me by the shoulder and threw me out in front of uh, the house and people did they just started gunning all of them down and uh, 63 of the people were killed in his house in front of him he says he remembers it like it was just a couple moments ago because it was just done in front of his eyes and he says there's no elders in his family left no fathers no uncles none of fathers of his cousins and none of them were alive and uh, so he has, he says, I'm the oldest person left in the family. And uh, that was his hand. Nur It's amazing, like at first there were alternative to talk, but like when the elder came to me and told about his story of surviving, all these like uh, young, young, like not young guys, but like guys in their 30s are coming up to me now and everybody has a story and like, Everybody wants to pour their heart out, and if I could, if I dedicate the whole hour to them on the radio, so they could just get their story out. More cheerful. Mang shpapa kira la ki waklap kile ki dashpe matlab dukmat o dimajahidin chikadara witi udio pachpal manskaraza dashpe dona raza kile chamardaki ba yobu. So tragic that like nobody, you know, nobody can even nobody even knows their story. I mean. There's lines dedicated to the massacre here and there in certain books, like on April 20th, 1979, in a village outside of Asadabad called Kerala, 1147 people were killed. Have you ever read the Revelations in the Holy Bible? And it's like Judgment Day or like, you know, the day the world ends. It must have been like that for them the sky becoming red and the ground shaking because there's people trapped alive that want to get out I mean imagine going through that being a little boy or a little girl watching all of that happen or a woman watching her husband and all her sons die like that like how can you even expect this person to want to go on and want to rebuild and reconstruct you just wish you had like a trillion dollars and you can just build everything for them and just tell them to sit home and just relax um, tomorrow should be interesting I am going with the Americans to an area called Grongal there's a problem one of the communists have gone to Grongal and you know He's done a lot of bad things there. There's been a lot of complaints from there. So the Americans want to take that guy. His name is Shawali. They want to take Shawali to Krongal in Gunnar and face, you know, his ac- accusers. And it's going to be pretty, pretty exciting to see how the Americans work and how they talk with people. One of the problems is the Americans like professional people. Um, professional people here are the communists. <laughs> Those are the only professional people left here that were trained by the Russians in military or police work. 
and the Americans like working with them because they're organized. Um, it's been really interesting with the Americans. I've met the Americans now. You know, they know I'm here. And uh, <laughs> when I talk to Americans, it feels like, you know, oh, <laughs> there's my countrymen. The other people tease me like that, too, people around here. Like the security guards and, like, Sartor and them tease me about it, you know. Like, your tribe. There's your tribe. And they, like, see the Americans. Hey, you know, more Good, how are you? Good to see you. Good to see you. You know how long it's going to take to crumble? About two and a half hours. So around 5.30 in the morning, I went over to the American base with my uncle. We're on our, we're on our way. My uncle's name is Abdul Rauf, but people usually refer to him as either Mullah Rauf or Commander Rauf. I usually just refer to him as Mama, which uh, means uncle. I'm going to save Mama. Yeah, yeah. Mullah Rauf is really respected. Um, he was probably one of the biggest commanders fighting against the Soviets. He's lost an eye. He's been injured severely two, three times. Um, he doesn't really have any formal relationship with the Americans. He's basically there helping out my dad, almost as his unofficial deputy. I'm traveling now with the Americans. I'm in a car with uh, Dave from Indiana, <laughs> Keith, and John. And then we finally got there. I guess that you could call it the equivalent of a town hall. It was just like a really small room. Mattresses on the floor, a couple of chairs inside. Hey, um, the reason we came up here was uh, twofold. His father represents President Karzai. Mm -hmm. President Karzai has Im imposed a... Uh, it's a moratorium. He, anyway, he's preventing people from cutting down all the trees. Kunar obviously doesn't have much of an economy, but one of the few things that Kunar has is really, really rare in Afghanistan, and that's timber. His reason is unless you have a program to regrow the trees, it's going to have a bad effect. And it's literally people going into the mountains cutting down wood and it's there's a lot of money involved and it's supporting al-Qaeda or Taliban or people that are against the government. Um, my uncle had never heard of it but he said there's this weird thing it's called a chancha and I was like a chancha what is a chancha he's like it's a really weird uh, equipment it can cut down trees really fast and he's like it's called a chancha he's like we went into the mountains one time to look for these people that to see if they really they were cutting down trees and he's like I heard a motor in the background I thought of somebody was on a motorcycle somewhere off in the distance and one of the soldiers told me no no that's 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 a chansa. And, you know, I obviously realized it's a chainsaw and maybe somebody from brought it over from China to Pakistan and then they sold it to people there and, you know, by the time it goes into Afghanistan it turns into a chansa. What was the third one? At first, the translator was doing an alright job, but then I had to interrupt him several times. So around this time, I took over the translation. The second reason is that there was a problem that was up here a few months ago. So then he started talking about the second reason why they were there, and that was because of the ex-communist Shawali. 
brought Shawa Lee up here. We have the elders here so that we don't have a repeat of this, uh, this problem in the future. Just because people don't like other people, there's a personality conflict, mm -hmm. okay? Doesn't mean that you can't uh, follow the duly appointed people in those positions. They're really trying to establish authority there, the Americans are, and Shawali was a person of authority, but this is just a corrupt official that, you know, takes bribes, steals money, and that's what the problem came down to. He, they refused to make the payment of him asking for bribes, and the Americans saw it as a refusal to pay tax and, you know, not accepting authority or not obeying authority. I was going to say, for instance, in the United States, if I get fined from a policeman for driving too fast, mm -hmm. but I think I was driving the speed limit, okay, mm -hmm. I don't shoot the policeman, okay, yeah. I don't okay. run him over and say I'm not going to listen to you because I was right and you were wrong, I go through the official system. Okay. This policeman uh, analogy, if you really want to use it, now imagine that this policeman had come into your house and had robbed you like a year ago and maybe killed a couple kids or two for you and just walked out of your house and then you started fighting him for like six months and then like the ninth month he comes and gives you a speeding ticket for going 55 in a 60 mile an hour. That would be more of an uh, accurate analogy about what happened. He says, <clears throat> we understand that we have to obey the central government, the provincial government, and we do obey them. But, he said, if some guy is coming here like a thuggery, or, you know, sort of running it like a mafia, then that, you know, I can't be responsible for that. Let's bring out the people. So Shaoli comes in and starts talking also. When he starts talking, it's uh, really super fast. And so you can tell he's a little worried. It's not really resolved at all. Um, when he got there, he was with the Americans, and so most of the people that had been robbed by him, or that had been beaten by him, or that had, you know, their money stolen, or, or whatever, were were too afraid to say anything. And Americans thought everything was okay and okay, let's take a picture now. So we decided to take a picture. I want to get a picture of him shaking Shaoli's hand. <coughs> <laughs> there you go, they hugged right there. Most of the Mujahideen are like Mullah Roof, they're proud people, not the kind of people that will go right away and kiss somebody's ass for a job. But the communists are willing to do that. They've worked for foreigners before, they'll do it again. And that really, in Kunar, it's gotten to a serious point where, you know, it's the same communist people now, it's just a different group of white people with them. Which <laughs> is exactly what they would say, you know. And so it's, it's important for the Americans to see who they befriend. It's causing serious damage to them. Everybody's calm down. Okay. Let's talk now about some of the problems, and I'm going to let some of the other people speak in the room now. Major Doug talk about the projects can, we can do to, to, to bring uh, peace and stability to the show. Next, we started talking about school projects or clinics, maybe bridge. And I think Shaoli was just like one incident where this could mean like a lot of permanent changes for them. So I think the, the school and bridges were more important for them.
I'm going to tell you that I cannot promise you we're going to build you a clinic, a school, a road, or a bridge. I will not promise you that, and if another soldier promised you that, I can't guarantee that those things are going to happen. I can tell you that we have submitted the paperwork to try and build a school here, but I am waiting on approval from my generals to see if we can do that. Seems like nobody can make a decision or nobody can, you know, make a promise except for Bush or somebody because everybody else has somebody higher up above them who has a real authority who they're going to have to wait for what they decide. So it does kind of disappoint people at times and they do not seem like the strongest of allies when they can't even promise a bridge to them. Coming up, things get more dangerous, a lot more dangerous. Plus, a kitten... When Haider Akbar's story continues in the second half of our program from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International, when our program continues. American Life, Ameriglass. If you're just tuning in, we're devoting our entire program today to Haider Akbar's audio diaries from Afghanistan. Haider was 18 years old when he recorded these in the summer of 2003 in Kunar province, where his dad was governor. And we pick up where we left off. Haider is out with U.S. forces. We're on our way back, and I guess uh, they've seen like a wire on the road, and they think it's a mine, so we've stopped. They're all getting out of the car, make sure everything's okay. <laughs> they've seen a wire, so they want to make sure they're not going to get ambushed or anything. Is there something going on? Yeah, there's a wire across the road down there. Sure. There's an old man and an old woman. They were walking together. We passed them coming down. We can hike up to them, but they saw a man up above us, uh, higher on the road, and uh, he was just sitting there with his wife. Let me go ask that fucker if he got a phone or a radio. Does he have a radio? You know, because they thought maybe you know he might have something with him, or maybe he's the you know signal guy. And uh, they were just being extra careful to make sure it's not you know two men sitting there with just another man in the burqa or something like that. Yeah, he's got his wife with him. I don't think. Can we call him over here? Sure. This is why. Not to disturb his wife. Yeah. You could tell he was a poor guy. Just you know, had like a shawl around him, but like a really beat up shawl. And he was absolutely terrified. He was like, "Why are these people walking up towards me?" You know, he's just a man on the side of the road sitting down. Yeah, so what are you doing here? So that's, we're taking a break. We got tired. We're sitting down here. 
Maybe if a car comes down, hit a ride. That's why I was just sitting in the corner like a ghost. Please forgive us as we disturbed your rest. We did a little No, we don't have a problem. This is our country. We want peace and security, so we don't mind you guys taking measures. I'm always glad when I hear a humble man express that. بیزیر خوشحال کیم وقتی چی دست سرده دست خبر را تو کی؟ If you see something in the road that looks like an explosive or a wire, don't do anything about yourself. Contact an official. After they're done, it almost sounds like you know, like the forest ranger at your local national park. After he stops you when he thinks he had like a lighter in your hand, and you don't have a lighter in your hand, and then he gives you a little speech about yeah, if, just in case, remember never to smoke. What do you think, Owen? Okay. We're heading back. They either got it cleared or realized it wasn't a danger. Yeah. Have a good day, man. Yeah. So I guess they didn't mind it, or it wasn't anything to begin with. So you know, every ship in Kunar is an adventure. <laughs> We just got ambushed. You can hear the shots fired. You can hear the shots fired at us. We're being fired at. There was just a mine that blew up in front of us. I better get down. I better get down. We've been ambushed. I can't get down. I can't get down. I'm trying to get. How can I get down more than this? I can't duck down. I'm totally exposed. I'm totally exposed. Wow. Yeah, 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 I'm trying to stay down as much as I can. We motor that mama behind town when they ask cut the water shit, she ain't kiki. Mama's fine. We are not. Mama's joking. He's like, I'm fine. I've been through this a lot of times, but for me, it's weird. Welcome to Kuna. There's a rush of blood. Okay, John, check our 3 o'clock. Somebody's pointing to our 3. No, 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 I'm pointing, I, I was pointing them, I'm telling them. They're all looking at the place. Terry was pointing to our 3 o'clock. So let me explain what happened. That's not going. Our mind just blew up in front of us, so there was an ambush. We, they were trying to ambush us. There's a truck to the left of us. We're in the middle of a valley, mountains both sides of us. We need to be we can see a pickup from here. I guess they're killed. So we're moving pretty quickly. We're getting out of here. We're stopping. We're stopping. They're coming out again. We're firing again. There's more people. There's more people. In the water, way high. Get down. Get down. General's running over here. You're gonna have to relay commands from these guys who are gonna be on the radio. You're gonna yell at me, I'm gonna be on that hilltop with those AMF guys, okay? Alright, do you want me to get down? No, you just, you stay in here, you stay safe, but if he has something that comes over the radio, you yell it to me, I'll hear you. Alright, alright, sure. Got I'll have to pull up his glass, so he okay. doesn't get a bullet. Okay, that's just how you look jigger, because that's what I need. Don't the other eye. We put a stuck at him, Picard did that. He joked with my uncle, he said, tell him to pull the window back up, we don't need him to lose the other eye. Get him over 
So they want me to, he's going to run to that hill. He doesn't want me to get out of the car. I wouldn't mind getting out of the car. Kind of want to see what's going on. I'm surprisingly calm, I guess you can say. That's okay. Hey, yell the chief, we're going to move. Get everybody back over here. Chief, we're going to move. Get everybody out of here. Back in the cars. I don't think he heard me. He's way down. Chief! Alright, he's coming. Motor nose! Motor nose! This is happening. We're gonna bound through our two vehicles. We'll take the lead, establish another support position, then they're gonna bound through and keep on going. You give me your fing thumbs up. Let's go! Get in the vehicle! No! God damn it, let's go! Let's go! Driving fast out of here. Getting out of here. Watch the civilians, John! Once again, I like, like my mom's calmness. No calm. He doesn't even have any, you know. He doesn't have a weapon. He doesn't have any, like, uh, armor vests or anything like the Americans have. And he's, like, the calmest out of all of them. That was a good experience. Overall, a good experience. <laughs> that might sound insane, but I'll explain later. Okay, guys. Okay. We'll see you guys soon. See you, take sir. care. Alright, buddy. We'll play we'll take care. Yeah, watch sure. Movies, do something. <laughs> yeah, watch me. Alright, man. Okay. Bye, guys. Alright, take care. Sound like. <laughs> I went through that baptism for Kunar and it almost helped me like with a little bit of legitimacy and all the, you know, of course, security guards wanted to hear it and they're like, oh, he's not scared. He's, so everybody was really happy. <laughs> and then my dad was sitting by the river and he was sitting there with the people talking. I was like, I have to tell you something. He's like, all right, just wait till I'm done. And I was like, no, no, you have to get up for just a minute and tell. And I, he got up for a minute and I told him what happened. I was like, we got ambushed. He's like, did anybody get killed? I was like, no. Did anybody get injured? I said, no. He's like, you really interrupted my meeting for that, Hyder? I was like, I got ambushed, you know? And it was really funny to see that nobody else thought it was that exciting or it was that incredible, you know, compared to what they have been through. It's it's exci relatively exciting, but not as serious as, you know, interrupting a meeting. <laughs> so that was really weird. And then it all of a sudden hit me. I was like, well, yeah, that's true. Maybe it isn't such a big deal for my dad or maybe for my uncle, who's seen a lot of that. There's a helicopter above us, it's patrolling because missiles have been hit. I guess they're trying to deter the missile attacks that have been happening lately. There are missile attacks that's been happening. It's about every night I've been here. It's not the most helpful thing when you're trying to go to sleep. You know, it's really rude of Al-Qaeda. You know, it would be much more convenient if they launched them at like 12 or 11 in the afternoon. Or like 12 in the after, 12 noon. Because it doesn't land. It's not dangerous. It's just, it's basically used to scare donors from coming in, to scare NGOs from coming in, and to scare foreign aid money from coming in. And that, and then that, it works because they're launched totally randomly and it lands in some random ass field. But, you know, reports go back to Kabul 
border troubled area of Kunar got three rockets launched at it last night and uh, no overnight stay in Kunar for UN and blah 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 I've been talking about the missile attacks that have been happening uh, a lot lately and then there was one night where three rockets were launched within about a minute of each other all towards the American base and uh, names started coming up and uh, one of the names was Abdul Wali which uh, from a valley here and uh, Abdul Wali's brother got in contact with my dad and um, they were really worried They've heard all kinds of horror stories about what the Americans do. And, you know, my dad talked to them and said, you know, don't worry. I'll send my son personally with you to the Americans, and he, he'll be there with you to translate and talk to them. So I took him to the Americans, and, like, they're asking him what he, where he was 14 days ago on the night of the three rockets. And this guy... Like, they don't have calendars, you know? Somebody asked you where you were 14 days ago. You're not, especially if you didn't do anything, like, you're not going to be able to tell. And you're like, oh, no, you fired three rockets. How could you not know the night three rockets fired where you were? And, like, uh, we already think you're lying. And your situation is getting worse by the minute. That was hard to watch. I just put my hand on his shoulder, and I let him know. Just say the truth. Nothing is going to happen if you just say the truth. And he was absolutely petrified and he could barely whisper the okay. And that was like my last words to him and then I walked out. And uh, maybe, maybe I am wrong. Maybe they do have very concrete evidence. Or maybe, like last time, let me tell you about the last time what happened. There's a guy named Saleh Muhammad. Okay, this guy's house had been attacked a couple times by the Americans. Weapons, caches, everything looked for a couple times. His women searched, his kids harassed. This guy was absolutely ashamed. He was ready to flee to Pakistan just because the kind of shame that had been brought upon his family. It's a big deal here to have that happen to you. And my dad sent him a letter, you know, saying if you're innocent, prove your innocence and come down to the capital. He was so grateful, and he came down to the capital right away. And, uh, surely enough, three days later, Americans handed him back to my dad and said, do whatever you want to do with him. He's not a threat to us. And so the Americans had completely put him to shame, had him ready to flee into the Punjab, Pakistan, maybe become a little recruit for Al-Qaeda, all because of some bad information. So you think maybe after something like that happens, they might pull their horses a little bit. I just hope everything goes okay, but in due time, we'll find out. Probably in about three days. I'm going to go to the American base to check up on him. Today, it's been a hectic day to say the least. Around, I'd say, 5.30 or 6 transitor from the Americans come over and say that Steve wants to talk and he wants to talk now and he was wondering if you could come to the base so we got kind of worried we're like what could it be because 
usually they come to the palace and like uh, say that they're waiting outside and if they could talk for a couple minutes so this was the first time they wanted my dad to actually come there so we arrived there and uh, we're waiting in the chair me and my dad and Steve and Dave arrive they come in exchange greetings they sit down and then they go unfortunately we have some bad news so I'm thinking, oh man, what happened? You know, is Abdul Wali not cooperating? Or did he admit to having a part in missile attacks? What happened? And they're like, unfortunately, Abdul Wali passed away. My jaw dropped. It's like, oh my God. And my dad, I was like, what? They said at uh, 3.30, 4. He just collapsed and they tried to make him stand again and he stood for a second but then he fell again and then they did the whole routine with the CPR and they said no expenses were held and just like they would have treated an American life and, and they, then they went into like the torture and anything like that and nothing like that was done he was being treated right and given like power bars and stuff like that who'd put rocks in his mouth but then they thought maybe because he's used to chewing tobacco and uh, he had tried to you know with like uh, the shackles that had binded his feet together try to break those and he hit his head against the wall a couple of times trying to work with that and just for our sake they wanted us to see see the body to make sure nothing had happened to it so we go to see his body. His body was kept in his uh, cell or whatever it was. And the cell was pretty bad condition. I have to be honest. And uh, inside, lay him with the sheet over his body. It was extremely hot and damp. And uh, my dad took the towel off his face. One of his eyes was like open. The other was closed. No marks on them. I touched his face. I touched his, like, chest, and he was dead, and it's like, this is extremely good propaganda for, like, Al-Qaeda, Taliban, hey guys, don't go to Americans, don't listen to Saifa's Lackwriter, you'll end up like Abdul Wali, remember Abdul Wali, you're gonna die like him if you go to him, so, so bad for us. Aside from politics, it just feels so personal for me. This guy was saying bye to me, like, make sure nothing happens to me. Like, it's the day before yesterday, and, you know, and I, it's hard not to feel responsible. Poor guy was only 28. I was just so scared. Olive. How did he die? That was not how it was supposed to happen. After his death, um, they were ready to do an autopsy to investigate. Um, the people there, of course, they don't know what an autopsy is. Um, it would probably be the worst thing you could do if they brought him back and he had cuts open up in him and stone back together They're like oh wow yeah this is how he died they just cut him up right through the middle 
but there was even a lawyer from Washington there, and uh, that's when I realized that it was a much bigger deal than I had thought of before. And uh, I'm probably one of very few civilians to have witnessed the interrogation of a suspected terrorist by U.S. forces. His death has barely been reported in the Western press. What has been your most difficult day being the governor of Kunar so far? If I had to choose one day as being my most difficult day, it would have to be the day that Abdul Wali died. American forces were ready to use military force to capture this person and I told him to please hold on and let me try and get a hold of him myself and since this man trusted me and since they trusted our family name the man did arrive to Kunar and did turn himself into us he claimed his innocence but he was incredibly fearful of what the Americans might do to him and since he was so fearful I sent you along to prove to him that there is no trouble and that I'll send my own son with you as a sign of trust. And so his family told us later on and his brother told us also that he did have heart problems. But this was such a difficult day to me because of of all the backup I have received, of all of the support I have received from the people of Kunar. This did leave a dent in it because people were more hesitant now to come to me. What you hear in the background is actually a tap dancer. It's a tradition in Kunar. They tap dance and you can hear it off in the distance, tap dancing in the cement outside. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> That's the fan rattling above me. It just sounds like somebody's tap dancing in a bit off in the distance, but it's actually the fan. There's no tap dancing experts in Kunar yet. I'll be going to Bajawar tomorrow. Bajawar is on Pakistan's side of the border. I'm going there tomorrow because that's actually where my uncle lives. Like, that's where his home is. He has like a 35-room, basically, fort, <laughs> along with his five brothers. I'll be going there tomorrow, probably spend a couple nights there. I'm at my uncle's guest house, and he's gonna get out in about a minute. We're gonna have a quick tour of his house. Okay, Mama's out. We're about to leave the guest house and enter like the main house. It's a huge room. Tall ceilings, basically like the garage. This is where they store all the foods and like huge sacks. And uh, they actually have our old bags here too. When we went to America in 87, we gave him some things to keep and they still have them in here. And you come out here. Let me just count how many kids are around me right now. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, yeah, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. Popped out of that corner. Seventeen. I just counted seventeen of them, like little, little kids. 
Basically, this is where they get their water from. They store it in a tank and then pour it in buckets and stuff and carry it around. Okay, we're gonna enter another place now. Assalamu alaikum. Tungasi. Haste. It's the first time I met Mama's wife. She's sitting here. This is Mama's room. This is his personal room. This is where he sleeps. My uncle's about the toughest person you'll ever meet. I mean, I don't want to speculate the number of people he's probably killed, or the number of times he's almost been killed, or the number of times he's been, you know, wounded during the war. Like, there's really small pieces of shrapnel, like, uh, they almost look like crumbs that are some places in his body. And the other day, it was, one of them was coming out of his forehead. He's like, hey, Hyder, can you help me here? I'm like, yeah, sure. There's like someone coming out here. Check it out. He's like, I checked it out and pulled it. It was like a little metal piece. He's like, oh, this is some, I think it's shrapnel. Like, can you help me pull it out? Like, I've been working on it for three days. It's slowly coming out of my skin. The funny story, the other day, there was a kitten. And my uncle saw it. And it's like, oh, look at that kitten. It's ran away from home or something. It's like, I think we should go get us some milk. And all his soldiers are like looking around, like giggling with each other. Like, what the hell <laughs> is this Mullah Roof? And he told his soldiers, go get some milk, man. He's like, hurry up. And so they were like, ran to go get some milk. And he brought the milk and he brought in this like little, little plate. And he poured it himself. And he was like, mm, you know, towards the kitten to go get some, to have some of the milk. And it was like the absolute funniest thing to watch this like guy with this big ass beard and one eye and metal coming out of his forehead like asking <laughs> this kid to get some milk. Now I'm gonna go ahead and interview my uncle. Cause he's really, you know, had a life that's pretty much unimaginable. And uh, now we're, oh. You just heard the light go out. <laughs> you didn't hear the lights go out, but you heard the electricity break down. The fan just turned off. It's going to be really hot now. So I asked him to sort of give a little history of when he, why he came here and why he became a refugee in Pakistan. This is probably around 1980. These Russians came with these uh, bulletproof vests on, and at that time we didn't know what, the, what they were. I started shooting at him. I emptied like all 30 of my bullets into him, and all they do is just make a scream like, ah, noise, and push back a little. He says it wouldn't penetrate him at all. And, you know, he says he totally spoke me out. And, you know, and so he said we went home and we decided that, you know, these new kind of Soviets, they're going to create problems for us. You know, not even bullets can penetrate them. So we decided to come to Pakistan and become refugees in Pakistan. And at first he said we came here in tents and uh, we lived in tents for a while and slowly, slowly we started building these houses. <laughs> My uncle started riding with himself. I'm like, what are you riding? And uh, he told me this last year, too. 
uh, you know, he's like, I have a really hard time writing this number. He can't write five in English. So, you know, he was practicing that with himself right now <laughs> when I was translating this in English. He said, I have a hard time writing down five and four in English. These five seem fine. I think I'm going to keep this. Okay, the fan turned back on. So, one more question I'm going to ask is, I think, between the resistance and the Taliban times and everything, what was, you know, one of the hardest moments of his life? And he said, when one of the, our guys was shot on the, on the road and, you know, died right there, I picked him up on our backs, and it was bitter, bitter cold in the mountains. And finally, he says, we, I managed to find a really small mosque in the middle of nowhere, he says we went I went in there with him and there's a really small bed. He says I laid the dead body there and um, I was laying on the floor next to him trying to get, you know, an hour or two sleep because it'd been my third night without sleep. And boom, right there, the big hole in the ceiling cracked because it was hailing really bad. He says soon the moss started filling up and it got to the point where it was up to my thighs. Eventually, I had to go, and I laid down next to the dead body. My clothes got bloodied, and, you know, I started to smell, but I had no choice. It was my third night without sleep. And he was a good friend of mine, he says. Same age, you know, we were fighting, and just hours ago, he was with me. He says that was his hardest day. This is probably going to be my last recording. This is probably about 1 o'clock at night right now. I couldn't sleep tonight. It's because I, I couldn't say anything at that time. Because, you know, my uncle, but that interview was so emotional. You know, when I asked him what was the hardest part of ever of, you know, everything you've been through. You know, he mentioned, you know, having to sleep next to this friend after he was killed and the hail pouring down on him and him trembling in that cold one of the reasons I wanted to interview my uncle before I left was because I knew it was gonna really you know have a lasting impression on me and just in case I ever, I ever get soft and I get like you know maybe I should just stay in America or maybe you know that image of him having to do that will at least keep me going for another five years. <laughs> and we have a really close relationship. I mean, it's the point where sometimes I accidentally call him dad. That's how close we are. And he really has high hopes for me. And he tells me all the time that he thinks I'm so smart and that I'm gonna do so much for this country. And it's just he's been through so much. And he, I can't let that all that just go in vain. I want him to see, you know, in Afghanistan moving forward because if anybody, he deserves to see it. You know, I can't even begin to explain how much respect and how much I admire him. Despite all he's been through, he's just about the nicest guy you'll ever meet. He still can't walk past a kitten. <laughs> you know, that's incredible. You know, to have that big of a heart because it does, you know, make you rough and it does harden you, but this guy <laughs> has
hasn't been hardened at all. One of my dreams is somehow to get my uncle a visa and take him on a trip to America. You know, take him to Vegas. That's one of the things. You know, if anybody deserves to just lose himself for a weekend in Vegas, it's my uncle. To have some fun, to relax. Hopefully by next year I'll be able to take him. Despite everything, I'm gonna be pulled back here. I know it. I just can't. I just can't do it any other way. I can't let my uncle down. Hi there, Akbar. He's now 20 years old, a junior at Yale University. His recordings were produced for radio by Susan Burton, with funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Susan and Hyder have also just published a book based in part on the two radio documentaries they did for our program. It's called Come Back to Afghanistan. It's funny. It's charming. It is unnerving and eye-opening and completely unlike anything else on the subject. One um, footnote to Hyder's story. About six months after we first broadcast today's program back in 2003, that man that Hyder took to be interrogated, Abdul Wali, the one who died while being interrogated by U.S. forces, he became international news. It turns out the U.S. government concluded that he may not have died of a heart attack, as Hyder was told. The American, who Hyder refers to as Dave in the story, was in fact a CIA contractor named David Passaro and was indicted by the U.S. Justice Department on charges of assault in the case. Passaro allegedly beat Wali with a large flashlight. He claims his innocence. Pictures of Abdul Wali's corpse showed bruises on his back that Hyder and his dad never saw. Passaro's trial is scheduled to begin in federal court in Raleigh, North Carolina in December. He is the first civilian charged with prisoner abuse in Afghanistan and Iraq. Three members of the 82nd Airborne saw the whole thing and are reportedly willing to testify against Passaro. Haider has been told that he might be called to testify as well. In March of this past year, the military said that its own investigations indicated that 26 prisoners have died of criminal homicide while in U.S. captivity, including Abdul Wali. Special thanks today to Haider's parents and brother, Nadira Akbar, Saeed Fazal Akbar, and Omar Akbar, and to Sator and his uncle Rauf. Also thanks to Dimitri Shub. Our website, www.thisamericanlife.org, where you can listen to the first of the two documentaries that Harder did for our program a few years back, or to this show, or to any of our shows, for absolutely free, or you can buy CDs, or you know you can download today's program in our archives at audible.com slash thisamericanlife. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. This American Life is made possible by TiVo. Yes, TiVo. Automatically recording just the shows worth watching. And ignoring all the rest, TiVo, TV your way. Learn more at TIVO.com. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by Mr. Tori Malatia, who explains why it is so hard getting objective journalism onto the public radio station that he manages. Professional people here are the communists <laughs> that were trained by the Russians. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. R.I. Public Radio International.